Our Father God, we lift this up tonight in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be good fertile soil for the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. But I pray that you would speak through me and your word will go forth as living seeds of truth, sown into good fertile soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, and will bring a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Holy Spirit, come have your way. I pray that you would plant this word in every heart, in every life, in an awesome and a mighty way and water that seed, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would burn the truth of your word into us. Let it become a part of who we are that's written into our hearts, burned in us. And we bind the enemy away from this word. He will not be able to steal or hinder it in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray that it would fill the earth and multiply, go among the nations and help bring revival. And I just feel to pray this. Y'all agree with me. Lord, we apply the blood of Jesus over our harvest to north, south, east, and west and bind the enemy away from that in Jesus' name. Lord, we ask you to send the angels to gather it in. Holy Spirit, that you would be released, that you would go forth and you would draw and convict and minister and prepare hearts and minds and lives for what you're wanting to do. We thank you, Lord. We bless you. In Jesus' mighty name. Lord, I pray that flow through me tonight and let everything be accomplished through this time and the rest of the service that you will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'm sharing about revival is probably a sermon that many of you, especially those that, that are kind of new to this, have never heard anything like this. But I wrote a book called Tabernacle Keys Revival. You can read it for free on the internet, fnirevival.com, for those hearing this. Or you can also um, get a copy from me if you want to buy it. But anyway, it's basically in the vein of what I'm preaching tonight, but goes in a lot more depth than I'm going to be able to go into. If I really wanted to cover this subject, it would be a several, you know, four to six weeks, four to six week series before we could cover it. All right. The presence of the Lord is strong. I'm trying to I'm trying to get into you know, when the glory is as strong sometimes it's kind of you're just well and I'm trying to get focused here. Okay. So a holy visitation is what I'm entitling this. I'm talking about the move of God. You know, this is not something new. This is something old. Okay, God's been pouring out his spirit since Jesus rose from the dead in the day of Pentecost. Okay, But there have been times when there was a holy visitation where God would come in great power. And it seemed like throughout, I don't want to get into all of it, just very quickly I'm going to touch on this. But in the book of Revelation, it lists the churches, and there's different ages that are represented. We're in the, the Laodicean age, which is concerning. Many around, around us are lukewarm. But Jesus, it was clearly prophesied in the scriptures through Joel and others that in the end times, God was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Okay? And around the end of the 1800s, God began to move in power. And you see in the early 1900s, you see the move of God that took place in Wales under Evan Roberts, okay? An amazing revival. Let me tell you, when a whole nation is shaken by the power of God, that's a major move of God, okay? And they, he had felt in his heart that God was going to give him 100,000 souls, and that probably happened within just the first couple months of the revival. But the whole nation of Wales was shaken by the power of God. And it was so radical, the move of the Spirit there, that they had a national soccer is the big thing in Europe, okay? But they had a national, kind of like we had the Super Bowl, all right? And they had to cancel it that year because revival was so sweeping the whole nation that nobody cared about soccer, 
And it's in the history book. Look it up. It says it says canceled due to revival. That's what it says. They, they had to start printing so many Bibles that they couldn't keep up with the Bibles. They were printing. People were just buying them out. Every time they print them, they were gone. All the bars shut down. I'm just telling you all some revival stories. And, and the, the mine, working the coal mines was a big thing in Wells. And, and the donkeys responded to profanity because that's what the people yelled at them every day. And so that's the words that they understood. Bleepity bleep this, and they'd go right, and they would, you know, do that. And they understood, you know, this is okay, you know. Well, when revival swept through there, everybody stopped cussing, and the donkeys didn't know what to do, and they had to get new pack mules is what they called them. They had to get rid of them and get new ones because they were useless now. (laughs) I'm talking about a whole nation shaken by the power of God. It was a radical move, and it started with one, one young man that was hungry for God named Evan Roberts, and he would have nightly visitations at periodically the Lord would just visit him and he'd be laying in his bed and he would just tremble under the power of God. And he didn't want that those visitations to stop. And the Lord spoke to him about going to Bible school and he was, he was nervous that if I leave and move off, this might stop. But he went and during that time when he was there is when God spoke to him. And he, he saw, he heard that cha-ching whenever somebody does a cash register and he saw a ticket like this and it said 100,000 souls on it. And he, when his roommate came in, he told him, he said, do you believe God can send revival to Wells? Do you believe he could give us 100,000 souls? And his roommate was just kind of dumb, you know, dumbstruck or whatever. But again, I say that that probably happened within the first couple months. But out of the Wells revival, the whole nation was shaken. Then it seemed to spark. It was like the fire jumped from Wells and jumped over to what we know as the Azusa Street revival. William Seymour, during that time, the reason why I bring up he was, he was a black man is because during that time, it was back with segregation laws, the Jim Crow laws. And so it was, it was pretty amazing that God used the blacks at that time to bring revival. But he was hungry for a move of God, and he would go to this. He couldn't be in the classroom with the, with the whites. It was against the law. But he would sit outside, and he would listen as Charles Parham talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he burned for it. He was hungry. And... Um, even though he hadn't quite received the baptism yet, he was interceding and praying and seeking God. And he left there. Um, I forget what that was. It was either in Houston or Chicago, but I think it was Houston. And then he moved down to L.A. area. And he, he was looking to pastor a church, and he goes in this one church. And some of you guys relate to this. And he goes in this church, and, and he opens up his Bible, and he starts with Acts chapter 2, and he starts talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They all freaked out and ran him out. So he was basically thrown out on his behind, and off he went. Well, that was fine. He ended up on Bonnie Bray Street with about a dozen others, and they began to pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They were hungry, and God poured out his spirit in an awesome way, and they were all baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the noise, it was like the day of Pentecost started drawing crowds, and pretty soon people started hearing about the move of God, and they started coming to Bonnie Bray Street to this house. And it started overflowing. It was so bad that the porch... There were so many people on the porch, the weight of it caused the porch to collapse, and people fell off the porch and were kind of rolling down the hill. I'm not sure if that's where the holy roller thing came from, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking that it had its start there. <laughs> I'm not sure, but that's, it might. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, William Seymour had to pretty soon rent in Azusa Street. It was called the Mission on Azusa Street, and it was just an old dilapidated building. But people came. This was before planes, trains, and automobiles. People came from all over. 
I mean, I guess they had trains, but people came from all over the world to this revival. Back in the days of horse and buggies when it was actually a real challenge to get there. I mean, nowadays, you hop on a plane, you know, you're in, you're in L.A. in a few hours. But back then, it was a, it was a major ordeal to, uh, to get there. So people came. They were hungry. They were desperate. And this went on for a couple of years. And the thing is that Satan had stolen from the body of Christ during the Dark Ages so much. And a lot of it was restored through Martin Luther in the 1517. But whenever this revival happened at Susan Street in L.A., the baptismal Holy Spirit was restored back to the body of Christ. It was pretty much non-existent. And let me tell you something. You need to really honor the fathers of the faith that went before you because there were people that could not find work that were persecuted, mightily persecuted, because of Pentecost. It's not like it is today. Those people back then were labeled, you know, a nutcase. And they. And let me tell you, you better be careful who you're following. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I feel that to go ahead and say it. You better be careful who you're following. Because Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, both end up in the ditch. You know, and there's people out there that have good intentions. How I many of you guys heard of uh, G. Campbell Morgan? I'm just sharing this for a reason. He's, you know, great Bible expositor. I have a lot of respect for him. You know, he knew the word. But how many knows you can be a man of the word and still miss a move of God? And even persecute a move of God? While the Sousa Street was the fires of revival were just blazing, people coming from all over the world. And what's happening was there was people coming in and they were getting baptized in fire and they were given a prayer language and they were so touched by God so powerfully. They were literally going all over the world, and, and revival spread to all the nations. That's where a lot of the missionaries began their ministry out of this nation was because of this industry revival. And they were clothed with power, and when they were going places, people were being healed, people were being delivered to demons and all this stuff. And over in England area, G. Campbell Morgan, I'm sharing this to, to warn you, was there, the blind leading the blinds. And he was pointing his finger. Now, listen, he was a man of influence. A lot of people respected him. He had books and such. He was pointing his finger at the revival at Azusa Street, saying, that's nothing more than the last vomit of Satan. And those were his exact words. Now, let me tell you what he did. He caused millions of people to end up in hell, and I'll tell you why. The people that would have listened to him if he had turned them toward the revival would have went there, got baptized in fire, and would have went out and won how, how many millions? Who knows how many millions of people to Jesus? But because he was turning people away from the move of God, it actually caused those millions to end up in hell. And I could go on and on. Church, church history repeats itself. If, if people don't learn from history, they, they're doomed to repeat it, is the old saying. You know. And R.A. Torrey said it was nothing more than, than, a, than a madhouse or a place of insanity. And I like Ari Torrey's books on the Holy Spirit and all that. And it was sad to me that he's written some of the better books of that time on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts and stuff like that. And yet, whenever a move of God showed up, he persecuted it. How could such a thing happen? And here William Seymour was just going after God, letting the Holy Spirit move in power. Going down through the ages real quickly. From Azusa Street, then a couple decades later, began the Latter Rain Movement with all the healing evangelists and those that were used powerfully. And you know names like Oral Roberts, but there was many others, many others. And they were, they were being used powerfully to see signs and wonders. 
As a matter of fact, uh, Pastor Tommy's dad, David Nunn, was one of the ones that was used so powerfully and was pretty well known around the Dallas area. He ministered with Jack Coe. And so, you know, he, that's his heritage. He grew up around the power of God. And then from that began the, the Jesus movement of the late 60s, early 70s, which some people remember. Actually, Benny, Benny Hinn was saved during those times. His ministry came out of the fires of that revival. Okay. And then, of course, around the early 90s, I'm sharing this for a reason because tonight I'm going to honor this through a video, but in the early 90s, it really began with Rodney Howard Brown's ministry, honestly. America was in, in a bad way. And uh, China, I'm sorry, South Korea was praying, fervently praying, and many of you don't know, but South Korea is, is filled with prayer warriors. And Dr. Cho's church, they have a prayer mountain. They purchased a mountain, and they made all these grottos in it. And people go there by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, actually, and will spend periods of time of prayer and fasting. And, of course, their whole church is centered around prayer and fasting. And they began to really pray and fast and seek God for a revival in America. And God spoke to Dr. Cho and said he, he was asleep. He was actually, if I remember the story right because I heard him tell it, but it's been a while. He was asleep in a hotel room here in America, and the Lord told him to get out a map of America. And he woke up, and he got out the map, and his finger went to Pensacola. Now, of all places to go, I mean, if you look on a map, Pensacola is not anything that's like stand out, okay? His finger goes to Pensacola. <laughs> and Dr. Cho prophesies there'll be a revival that hits Pensacola, and it will eventually, eventually spread across all of America. And the revival's still going on, which I'm about to share. But God brought somebody, uh, Rodney Howard Brown's ministry, in the early 90s, and he was a missionary. God brought him here uh, from South Africa, and he had a heart for America, still does. And... Um, which nobody knew who he was. But anyway, the power of God fell. I believe he was in New York. Some of you might remember him telling the story better than I. But he was just going and preaching by faith. How many knows going with a family of three kids, his wife, and they flew in from South Africa with $300, and they're like, Lord, we're here. Now what? That takes faith, okay? But he loves us, and he came here because of his love for America. And um, at some point in time as he's ministering, the Holy Spirit falls, I believe it was in New York, and from that point, just this massive move of God started happening through his ministry. From that sparked the Toronto Revival through Randy Clark, who got prayer from Rodney, went there. The Toronto Revival was amazing. And then from Toronto, um, help helped spark the Revival in Pensacola, which was an amazing move of God. It really was. 4.5 million, 4 million people came through the church from all over the world, just to give you an idea. There was well over, well over a million people got saved through that revival. And I, and I can testify to that because I was, I was very actively following that move of God. I would say a million people is a gross understatement of how many people actually got saved. And um, it seemed like a little lull after that revival. I wouldn't say it ended, but it ended at that church and continued on through others. There was kind of a lull there for a few years. And there was little, little flames that broke out in other places. But now, with the Bay of the Holy Spirit revival breaking out, it's a continuation of Brownsville. Okay? And it's intensified radically. And Dick Rubin prophesied uh, a couple Sundays ago. He said when Rodney came in the early 90s, it was like the river started flowing in America, and it was ankle deep. And many of you know the scripture in Ezekiel. And uh, 
when it went to Toronto, it got knee-deep. When it ended up in Brownsville, it was waist-deep. And he said he feels like now at the bay, it's going to go over the head. Ruth Ward Heflin, before she died, prophesied. She said she was taken up in the spirit, and she saw all of America ablaze in the fires of revival. And Dallas was the hub. There's a reason why God's been drawing people to this area. Benny Hinn's located his ministry here. God's drawn other people. And, and I say this humbly, but I have a heart for revival. And there's a reason why God has drawn people that have a heart for revival to this area. Okay. And there's many others that are relocating here as well. I believe this is going to be a powerful, powerful area. There's a heritage here with Christ for the Nations in Dallas, the healing revivals of the 40s and 50s kind of centered around Gordon Lindsay and the, and the CFNI, and he started this magazine, okay? And, and people followed, uh, Voice of Healing, I think was the name of it, and people followed that move of God that was going on in all the miracles. See, back then when God moved, you know, you picked up the Pentecostal Evangel, and it was pretty common to read something like John Smith was, was preaching in church the other Sunday. Fire was seen in the building. People fell on the ground by the hundreds. It was normal to hear stuff like that. Thank God for Dr. Cho in South Korea that prayed for America because it seemed like there was a time when America started spiraling down after the 60s and the hippie movement. Things were just going down. And, and God heard their prayers and sent Brother Rodney, but also others in revival started breaking out in America. But right, I'm going to move quick. The whole thing about revival is God takes dry bones Ezekiel's dry bones. God takes dry bones and creates a great army. And somebody that is in the spirit, which I'll talk about that a little bit too later. When you have the heart of God and you're in the spirit and you're not in the flesh, God will help you to see an army amongst the dry bones. But that's not an easy thing to do. Because when you look at the dry bones, you want to get angry at the dry bones. You want to say, what is wrong with you dry bones? And you just want to curse the dry bones. But God is wanting to move by the power of his spirit and cause the dry bones to become a great army. But only God can do that. It was interesting during the early, and we'll see this on the video, during the early times of this nation, John Wesley came over from England, and this, and this nation has always been a place of revival. It really has. The nation started, Wesley's ministry helped to spread revival. Okay? Throughout this whole nation, it was a great awakening. And then later on, Charles Finney, many of you know about him. I think it was 100 years later, Charles Finney's ministry helped to spark another revival. And I wonder, I just thought about this, I wonder, because Wesley was a British minister, I wonder now that in, in the Bay of the Holy Spirit revival, there's somebody from Britain coming in and connected with Brother Kilpatrick. I wonder if there's not something prophetic about that. Because Dutch Sheets has been prophesying, that the awakening has begun. I don't know when it will come full flame. It may, it may take many years before things come full flame, okay? But he feels, he feels the awakening has begun, okay? Praise God. Let me give you some quick patterns. If you want to look on the very back of the pictures of the tabernacle or whatever, and actually if you open this thing up, there's a picture of a priest in his garments, and there's the tabernacle laid out. And I'm going to go through this quickly. If you want to go deeper, read my book. It's easy to read, and it'll explain all of it, okay? But there is really a pattern for getting into the glory of God. 
it is not just an accident that God has been pouring out his spirit here. It's not just something stumbled upon. Some people have asked me, well, what, what do you do right? What do you do? And, I was, and I was, I'll say this. There's probably a lot of things that I don't do right. But there's one thing that I feel like I do right, and that is I'm willing to be different. That's the only thing I feel like that I can say I feel like I'm doing right there. Because the typical church, look, if something's broken, it's not working, why keep doing the same thing? I'll never understand it. If people aren't getting saved, aren't getting healed, aren't getting delivered, you're not seeing the book of Acts, something's wrong. Something's broke, okay? And it's time to pull back and realize, okay, what, where is the problem? And let's start this thing over. And I felt the Lord tell me to start something from scratch instead of trying to, um, there was a saying that, that my parents said growing up about beating a dead horse, Okay. Instead of trying to beat a dead horse, he's like, why not just start something from the scratch, you know, from the ground up? Because I'm going to tell you, if you try to pour a new wine into an old wineskin, everybody's going to be upset. No good's going to come out of it, okay? So sometimes you've got to start from the scratch and be willing to be different for God to move. But here's some patterns, okay? And it's found in the tabernacle. If you look at the picture... If you looked at the tabernacle from the outside, if you look at the picture of it, if you were back and you were some heathen Gentile, let's say that you were a Philistine okay, back in the day, right? and uh, you were up there and you were looking down on this, you'd be thinking, well, that pillar of fire is pretty cool, okay? But, but what's the big deal about this? It's about the size of a football field. What, why is everybody camped around that thing? You know, what's, what's the big deal about that? There's a white fence around it. It's about the size of a football field. You've got these guys in there that are dressed funny. To them, that's what they would think. And, they're, and they're, they're burning animals, but everybody just flocks there. Everybody camps around it and faces it. What's the big deal? What the big deal is is that's where God dwelled. That's what the big deal was. And to get into that glory, if you were looking at this, it looks kind of drab. The, the covering over the tent was made of badger skins. It was just real plain. There wasn't anything fancy about it. It had, a, it had a white around it and a fire going. But see, for you to really appreciate the glory, you would have to get inside that tent. And once you got inside there, everything was gold. There was this beautiful um, cherubims woven into the, the, the decor, and it smelled like that incense. It was lit up by that golden lampstand. It was a beautiful thing, and God's presence was there. But when you pulled out of that and looked at it, it doesn't look like anything really impressive. And that's the way a lot of people are that are in outer court Christianity. They look at revival, they look at the move of God, and they think, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? I got Jesus. What's the big deal? But once they get in and they get touched by God, they're going to go, oh, that's the big deal. But you can't hardly tell them. It's like they've got to experience it for themselves. But see, there's an outer court Christianity that when you look at the outer court there, okay, it was lit up by natural sunlight. And the burning of the animal represents the cross. And the laver that had water in it represents water baptism. And that's where most Christians are. 
They see everything by the natural instead of the spiritual. They see everything by the natural revelation. And it's all about just the cross and water baptism, and that's where they stop. And they think, I've got everything I need. What's wrong with you people? Y'all are a bunch of nuts. You're zealous. What are you, what are you so excited about? What are you jumping for? What's wrong with you? You know, what's that person waving their hands in the air for? Well, that's just weird. You know, and they don't understand. It's just they just sit there in their service just real solemnly. But if they ever get touched by the fire of God, everything in their life is going to get turned upside down. Because the, the prideful and the arrogant look down at this. Let me tell you something about revival. The Bible is clear about this, and remember this to the day you die. This is something to, to put on your mirror. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Everything about Christianity has to do with that right there. For somebody to come to Jesus as Savior, they've got to humble themselves and realize I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. They've got to humble themselves. To get into this tent, to get into the move of God, you've got to humble yourself. If you sit back all prideful and arrogant, criticizing and throwing stones, God's going to hit everybody around you but you because he opposes the proud. And the reason why the demonstrations of the Spirit's power are the way they are is because it takes humility to receive from God like that. Do you hear what I'm saying? And God chooses vessels, which you'll see tonight. God chooses vessels deliberately to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. Did you get that? God chooses vessels to pour out his spirit deliberately, knowing that they will be rejected by the arrogant. He does it on purpose because he's opposing the proud but giving grace to the humble. While I'm talking about this, I want you to look at the picture on the inside of the tabernacle, the, out, the outline. The layout. Now, I want you to follow me. And I'm going to move quickly and then show this video. At the very top up there in the far west, okay, where it says intimacy, that's the Holy of Holies. Right down below it is the holy place. And then the rest of it is what's called the outer court. Another way you can see this is the outer court represents your flesh. The holy place represents your soul. But the Holy of Holies represents your spirit. And how many knows you've got to get past the flesh? And that's usually what happens in a church service during praise and worship is people start getting past their flesh. And they start getting their mind focused on God. And they start focusing their soul, their emotions, and their worship, and their minds, and their imagination on the Lord. And then next thing you know, they get into the spirit. And now it becomes spirit to spirit, deep calling to deep. But I'm going to tell you, most of Christianity, and just stay on that outline, I'm about to get into it, but most of Christianity have never come into the power of God yet. But I believe the winds are changing because God's moving so powerfully in America, and he's going to continue to, that many, even some of the skeptics, are going to, going to change their attitude. But some of you, at one time, you had outer court Christianity, if you will. You knew Jesus as Savior, and you were water baptized, and that's about it. 
And then when you come into a ministry like this that's in revival, it's such a culture shock because you go from outer court Christianity to holy place Christianity. And it's very different. And a lot of people have never been around anything like it, and it's a culture shock. But there's a culture about revival. It's a culture of God's presence and a culture of allowing the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do and not being ashamed of the power of God. So in the outline, quickly going through it at the bottom where it says preach Jesus, there was a gate on the east side for you to get in. I mean, he knows when Jesus comes, he says he's going to split the eastern sky. This is prophetic. But anyway, the gate had four colors on it. Everything else was white. It had purple, which represented Jesus as the king of the Jews, royalty, which was revealed in Matthew. It had white, which represents Jesus, the righteous man, which was revealed in the book of Luke. It had scarlet, which speaks of the suffering Savior that shed his blood, revealed in Mark. And then it, it speaks of blue. It has blue in it, which speaks of the Son of God who came down out of heaven, revealed in the book of John. So you follow me. And basically the gate is preaching Jesus, getting people's focus on Jesus, preaching stories and books and and different things and watering it down. Preach Jesus. And when you do that, you start bringing people in. You say, if I be lifted up, I'll draw them in unto me. I realize that's the cross, but it's still true. When he's lifted up and exalted, he starts drawing people to him. The next thing in the outer court was blessings were spoken. The priest once they offered up their sacrifice, which would be embarrassing. If Joey and I lived back in the day and we were neighbors and, and Joey, Joey got into sin and um, he had, a, you know, had to go and take his goat to the tabernacle, and he had his head down and here he was carrying his goat and it was making a big noise, you know, and he's carrying it across there. And all, all the neighbors are going, wow, Joey, what'd you do, man, you know? <laughs> I'm just kidding with you. But as they brought in their sacrifice, and it was cut up into five pieces and put on there, and it was burned. Jesus was pierced in five places, but it was burned there. And then the priest, after their sins were forgiven, okay, because of the blood, the priest would lift up his hands, and he would speak a blessing over them. It was a powerful thing. He would say, the Lord bless and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you, lift up his countenance towards you, give you peace. So blessings are part of revival, okay? The next thing is, and blessings will change things. I can't talk about a lot tonight. But speak blessings and you'll start seeing positive change, okay? The bronze altar speaks of, the bronze is judgment. The bronze altar spoke of the cross, God's judgment that came on Jesus on our behalf, okay? And like I said, they would take the animal, cut them into five pieces, put them on the, the offering and burn it up, and it was the cross, represented the cross. And, that, and they were supposed to sprinkle the blood on all four sides. So, I mean, when you came to that bronze altar, it was, it was bloody. And one of the reasons why we're not having revival is because people quit preaching the blood and quit, quit preaching the cross and the power of God. I'm talking about the power of God and the salvation of the cross. And I've been preaching about lately about the power of, of your sins being forgiven, but also healing, deliverance of the cross and everything else. I've been preaching the cross. But many ministries pull away from the blood. They pull away from preaching the cross. I don't know why. It's a people-pleasing thing. It's an end-time prophecy being fulfilled that people would gather under themselves, teachers that would tell them what their itching ears just want to hear. 
It's a fulfillment of that prophecy. Then you would go from the bronze altar, a place of getting your sins cleansed, and you would go to the laver, and they would wash their hands and feet. And it speaks of water baptism, but it also speaks of the washing of the water of the word. And see, whenever preachers preach against sin, what does it do? It has a cleansing effect in your life. I mean, what I'm talking about. You heard somebody preach on something, you're like, wow, I need to get right about that. you know. And it, it had a cleansing effect on your life. That's the washing of the water of the word. And if preachers will get back to preaching Jesus, preaching the cross, and having that washing in people's lives, it's preparing the way for revival. And then as you went into the tent, it would smell like incense. And as you went in, it had the, it was just beautiful. Everything was golden. To your right was the table. And the table had the bread of presence on it, and it had the wine on it, and it represented communion. Okay? Obviously the body and blood of the Lord, but it represented taking communion. And let me give you some powerful things in my book I talk about more. But taking communion has a tremendous amount to do with the move of God. Okay? I can't even begin to express because I don't want to spend a lot of time on the sermon because I want to get to the video and pray with people. But communion, let me just give you a couple of quick things. Number one, in Leviticus 6.18, it says that the priest, whenever they would burn the sacrifice, the priest would eat of it. And whenever they would eat of it, it said they became so holy that even what they touched became holy. And it was a picture and type of taking the Lord's Supper. It has some kind of a deep consecration. What Jesus, what represents his body and blood is in you. There's an intimacy in that alone. You see what I'm saying? Protection. In Job 1.9, whenever the angels, the fallen angels and Satan came to God, and God said, if you consider my servant Job. Now, Job would get up every day as being a godly man, the head of his house, and he would shed blood for his family every day. And he said to himself, perhaps one of my kids cursed God in their hearts or something. So he would shed blood every day for his family to be cleansed of sin. That was his daily routine. And listen to what the devil said about Job. Whenever God said, you consider my servant Job, the devil said, well, haven't you put a hedge of protection around him and his family and all he has? And I'm not going to keep going with it because that's my point. There was a hedge around his family because of the blood, the power of the blood. What was it in Egypt whenever the Israel, the death angel passed over it? It was the blood, the blood of the lamb. That whenever the death angel came and saw the blood, he said, we can't touch it. What is it that David saw in Psalm 23 when he said, God has given me a table in the presence of my enemies? And right before that, he said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because of the blood. There's a deep intimacy and a revelation from the Lord. In Luke 24, whenever Jesus was walking with those men on the road to Emmaus, and it said, did not our hearts, remember? They said, did not our hearts burn within us? They didn't even know it was Jesus. But whenever Jesus sat down with them and he broke bread, it says their eyes were opened and they saw who he was. And then they said, didn't our hearts burn within us? There's something about breaking bread with the Lord that opens your eyes spiritually and causes your heart to burn. Removing the yeast in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul said, keep the feast and, and it would remove the yeast out from among you. Yeast represents sin. 
I've actually seen this because we take communion regularly. I've seen people come in that were troubled and they weren't right with God. And the Lord purged them out from our midst. It was like the yeast being removed. And even you as an individual, the yeast gets purged out of you. Okay, through the Lord's Supper, there's something powerful about it. The fullness of the covenant being released. And what I mean by that is this. In Genesis 14, Abram and Melchizedek took communion together. Abram, I'd mentioned this before, but Abram had just defeated like three kings in their armies with his family, which was amazing. But anyway, he, he gave tithes, okay, and then after he sowed his tithe, he took communion with Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blessed him. And this is what the Lord showed me. And I kind of feel like the, the devil didn't want people to get this part, okay? So y'all make sure and lock in and get this. But the Lord showed me that as they took communion together, and Melchizedek spoke a blessing over them. They took communion and spoke a blessing. Right after that, Abram, God had an encounter with, I'm sorry, Abram had an encounter with God, and everything changed. He was given the covenant of circumcision. Okay? He was, his, uh, he was promised to have the child. The child was on the way, basically. You know, everything started, it seemed like everything kicked in right after that. And Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part in me. There's something about that. There's something about breaking through into your destiny that has to do with taking communion on a regular basis and having authority figures bless you. Okay? There's something about that. All right, strength for the battle, 1 Samuel 21. I mean, if you've read the story where David and his men were hungry and they ate the consecrated bread, they had grown weary in battle. But the Lord provided for him, and that consecrated bread provided strength. Many people are healed when they take communion. And the reason why is because they remember what Jesus has done for them on the cross. Many people are set free and delivered. I could tell stories. There was a woman who used to be a witch named Dor- Dorian Irvine, and um, she wrote a book I read. It was really good. She's a Christian on fire for God out of England. But anyway... She said that after she got saved, she started. She was like, well, I need to go to church. You know, she was sitting in church. Whenever they would pass out communion, she would start manifesting demons, fall on the ground. If the blood got, or what represented the blood, got anywhere near her. See, the demonic hates the blood of Jesus. But anyway, communion is powerful in deliverance, getting people set free, okay? It gives you access to the Holy of Holies. The reason why we can come into the Holy of Holies is because of the blood. It's not your own self-righteousness. The bread of presence, Exodus 25:30. The bread is called the bread of presence, but there's something about the bread of presence and God's manifest presence coming into a place. I already mentioned the table in the presence of your enemies, the valley of death, but also helping you to move past the flesh and into the spirit. But when you look at this, outline you can see that you're going into the tent and on your right is what represents communion and on your left is what represents the anointing the lampstand did not have any dimensions like others so it was without measure but it had oil flowing through it it was pure gold and it was lit the seven flames on the top of it 
And it represents the revelation from the Holy Spirit, the anointing and the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible talks about, 1 Corinthians 13, 14, talks about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, it talks about the Holy Spirit searches even the deep things of God. And the anointing in Psalm 42.7, it talks about deep calling to deep. And so, basically, in your own personal prayer life, you can have this, but also a church can have this if they're willing to be different. Not different than the Bible, but different than the culture around them that is different. But as whenever you come to church here, we come in and we take communion together, and there's, there's the blood and getting cleansed in the blood and coming through the blood, okay? Then we speak the blessing. Then what? We let the Holy Spirit move. And he can do what he wants to do because he's God and we're not. Okay? But the thing about the Holy Spirit is, and I guess it's somewhat detrimental to some people, but he, he won't come in and browbeat people and take over. If people don't honor him, he'll just leave. And then what you got is just, you know, uh, as one guy said, empty hands laid on empty heads. That's what happens. <laughs> but after you, ta- after you go past communion and, you, and you, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and you're letting the Holy Spirit have his way and move, then it's the golden altar of incense which as you're looking at what you're looking at, it shows the priest there before the golden altar as the incense is burning. And it speaks of heart worship. There was four parts of the incense, and it was all ground together, and it would burn. And the incense represents praise and worship, prayer and intercession. But worship is what would take somebody into the Holy of Holies. And back then, the priest would burn that incense. They would do this every day, but once a year, they could go into the Holy of Holies. But the, the incense would burn, and then they would take a censer with that incense in it, and they would take it in with them. So the worship was always going as they went into the Holy of Holies. Okay. So this is the pattern. You've got the Lord's Supper. You've got the Holy Spirit moving and, and doing what he wants to do. You've got worship. And as the worship is free and as you're worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth, you start moving into the glory. And the glory of God comes from two Hebrew words. One of them is the word kabod, and it's C-H-A-B-O-D. Kabod, and what it means, it means like a heaviness. And that's what many times you feel in God's manifest presence here. You feel like a heaviness of God. You feel a weightiness. That's the glory. Another word for the glory was Shekinah. And it represents, it means shining or brightness. So another aspect of God's glory is his shining. In a moment, I'm actually going to show a, a video of the tabernacle going in, and you'll kind of see it for yourself. But the Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that's where the glory of God was, okay? And, it's, and it talks about depth of glory, intimacy, stillness, encounters with God. And then when you're in there, it's just time to be humble and hungry in fellowship with the Lord. It's an intimate place with the Lord. As you know, when you're out of the Holy of Holies, you're worshiping God, you're praising, and you're loud, and, and the bells and pomegranates was, were chiming. But when you're in the glory, it's just kind of a stillness and an intimacy with God. You know. 
But as you look at the priest, like I said, this this whole teaching, if I went in this, could take so long. I mean, six weeks, easy. But I'm going to give you in a nutshell. The layer of white that you see, the turban, the robe, and then there was like pajama bottom. The, the layer of white is the robe of righteousness and the garments of salvation. That's what happens in your life when you're washed in the blood of Jesus. And Peter says that we're all a kingdom of priests, okay, a royal priesthood. The blue always speaks of coming down from heaven. It's the clothing of power, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the clothing of power. And on the bottom of that blue tunic was the bells and pomegranates, which represents the gifts and fruits of the Spirit. And then the gold that you see on top represents the glory of God. And so as priests, we're supposed to be clothed in righteousness, washed in the blood of Jesus. We're also supposed to be clothed in power, operating in the gifts of the Spirit. And we're also supposed to be clothed in the glory of God. As the Bible says, and I believe it's Isaiah 60 or 61, it says, Gross darkness would fill the earth, but the glory of the Lord would arise and shine upon his people. And as just like there's stars that are out there during the day, but you don't notice the stars until it starts getting dark. The darker the world gets, the brighter true Christianity is going to look. Okay? But it will also help separate the counterfeit from the real. Let me give you some things here in a moment. I'll show you that, that clip. But one of the things I want to share real quick on this end part, if you look at that picture at the bottom there, you can see the lampstand on the left and the, the altar or the communion, the communion table on the right. And then you, as you look, you can see the altar of incense there. But way back in the back is the, the veil has been ripped open, okay? In the back you see the Ark of the Covenant. So this is the pattern of getting into the glory it's about getting washed in the blood and getting sanctified and what represents, you know, taking communion and then letting the Holy Spirit have his way. Then worship is that ushers you in, true worship. All right. The first thing is, tonight I want people to make sure that you're getting things totally right with God. Okay. One of the things I felt to share is, is that I don't deal with this a lot with this church at all, but I have a little. But I know most preachers deal with it a lot. See, there's, there's a thing where people work secular jobs, and I don't know how long everybody prays, you know. But let's just say people pray about an hour a day. So you're looking at seven hours in a week, but you're looking at 40 hours in a secular job. And here the, the preacher is spending the week in prayer and in the Word, and, you know, there's a lot of focus on, on the Lord and moving with the Spirit. And sometimes people have a hard time devoting 40 hours to basically thinking from a worldly point of view. You understand what I'm saying? And having to do things in a secular environment, a secular way, thinking carnally and and even humanism and being secular. And then when they come to church and the ministers are moving with the spirit, there's a conflict. That's why a lot of board members in churches try to control the preacher, and they want to run it like a business, like a secular business, because that's all they understand. 
When you try to move with the spirit and try to move with the flesh, it's not going to work. And some people work throughout the day, and they're constantly having to think. See, in secular jobs, the attitude is you have to be a go-getter, and you've got to push buttons and make things happen. But when you come to the church, if you start bringing that garbage into the church and you try to manipulate God and start pushing buttons and force God's hand, it'll never work. And so what happens is, is sometimes there's a conflict because people are wanting to push things and they're wanting to try to make things happen. And you have to learn to flow with the Lord and be at peace about things. And that's something that I felt to share because I think some people are dealing with that to some degree. No matter what authority position you have, it is only there by the grace of God and it can be gone tomorrow. Okay, God can take it. But you better be careful that your mind is very humble under authority and moving with the Holy Spirit and not trying to manipulate what you think. And people, like I said, come out of secular jobs, and they've spent so many hours and hours and hours doing things one way. And it's actually the exact opposite of the way you have to move with God. And to to turn that off, when they come to church, to turn it off and get in the spirit, some people have a very hard time with that. Okay? Very quickly, some things about revival. Don't major on manifestations or try to control all of it. If you, if you lick your finger and you put it in a light socket, something's going to happen. Okay, when people come in, in contact with God, something's going to happen. They're going to shake, fall, laugh, cry, whatever. There, there's going to be something that happens. Okay? Don't major on that and don't try to control it and don't be critical. Let God do what he wants to do. Okay? And be patient with people because some people are insecure and they've never been touched by God before and they get touched and some manifestation happens where they fall on the ground or something. They start laughing. Well, then they want that again and again. So then instead of God putting them on the ground, they start falling on the ground. You understand understand where I'm going? And you kind of got to be patient with them because if you go up there like a big ogre and and try to tell them, hey, look, you know, you're in the flesh, you're just going to hurt their feelings. And you're going to grieve the Holy Spirit because he's a lot more patient with people than we are. Let them fall. What will probably happen is somebody won't catch them one time. <laughs> they'll, they'll learn their little lesson, and then there we go. All right. Be careful who you follow. I've already talked about this. Make sure that you are not the blind leading the blind. Be careful about who you're following. Another thing about revival is you've got to have unstructured services where man is not in control, but the Holy Spirit is in charge. I'm going to tell you, when the Holy Spirit comes and he moves, it seems to the secular businessman, it seems out of control and chaotic. But yet, God is totally in control. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The Holy Spirit falls in a, in a place. People over here... 25 of them fall on the ground. They're rolling around. These people over here are belly laughing. Some over here are bawling their eyes out. Some lady over here just screamed. Okay, and then you got, you, you got a demon just came out of somebody. And you got somebody running around because they just got healed. My ankle's healed. And then they're running around the building. And it looks like, it looks like pandemonium. 
All that happened is God showed up. And the the people that don't have the spiritual mind are, are sitting there going, this is chaos. This is not God. This is not order. And what they want is they want to manipulate it, and they want to put it all in what control they feel like it should be, this cookie-cutter way. I'm going to control this. And you know what? Whenever that happens, man's in control. Nothing happens. No, there's nobody running around healed. There's demons not coming out of anybody. You know, people aren't laughing anymore. And, it, and it's like, you know, or crying or whatever, and people aren't being touched. But if you'll let God move, he's in control. Okay? Absolutely no idols. Listen, this is something I want us to pray about tonight. I sent this out, and I want people to be praying. Make sure there's no idols at all. Is even revival, the move of the Spirit, worship, churches, ministries, things like that can be made an idol. So make sure that nothing, and I'm going to pray tonight. Is there idols that have been in your heart or your life? Is there been idols in your family? And let the Lord deal with you, okay? And get that stuff out. But be careful about that. All right. Unforgiveness. We've got to be careful to guard against that. Make sure we forgive everyone. Another thing is rebellion. It's interesting because your rebellion is truly tested whenever you have to do something you don't want to do. Because if you always just do what you want to do anyway, if somebody tells you, hey, can you do this, and you wanted to do it anyway, then you're just obliging them. That's no big deal. You were going to do it anyway. But if somebody tells you, do this, and you don't want to do it, that's when all of a sudden whether you're rebellious or submitted to authority is going to come out. Or if you want to do something and the authority says no, are you going to do it anyway? And see, rebellion has always been something that has come up in revival and something that God's had to deal with. Okay, Remember the children of Israel, whenever Korah, Dathan, and Abiram came against Moses and they were rebelling against his authority and they're like, who are you to be leading us? Who are you to be telling us anything? We're priests just like you. We're Levites just like you're Levites. Who are you to be in charge? And Moses fell on his face. He's very humble. He's like, I don't. His, Moses, if you read the whole story, Moses' attitude was always like, I'm not important. I'm not somebody that, that should be picked by God. You probably would do a better job than me. But I am. And he says, you know, this is what God says, and this is what we're doing, like it or not. He was always very humble about it. But sometimes people would rise up and protest, and God would judge it. And the same is true today. We have to stay under authority and be careful about that. Because when rebellion creeps in, it, it's devastating for everybody. Okay? I'm telling you things to keep revival going, keep the momentum going, and not letting it. Another thing I didn't put on here, but division. Make sure to not let Satan divide. We've got to make sure and forgive people. And the Bible says if you have a problem with somebody, go to them and talk to them about it. A lot of the immaturity that goes on in churches wouldn't even be tolerated in a secular job environment. I don't like the carpet, you know, and just whining about something. I mean, you know, if you were at a secular job and you started that, what do you think would happen? You know, well, he said something mean to me. It's like, get over it, you know? I mean, if, but see, that level of immaturity comes into the church. I've seen people that are like, I'm serious, I'm not exaggerating, 50, 60 years old. They sit in my pew, you know, and just, I can't believe they changed the carpet to that color. I hate it. I ain't never coming back. You know, just this little baby stuff. 
And it's like, how long have you been saved? 30 years. It's like, you're still mad about this, you know. There's a time to grow up and be mature. If something happens and somebody offends you, go to them and talk to them about it. Say, look, you said something that offended me. Let's talk about it, you know, and work it out. All right. Another thing, watch out for lust and sexual pitfalls. Satan will send satanic attack. Okay? Guard yourself. And remember that words have the power of life and death in them. Keep a guard over your mouth and be careful that you're not cursing things, but you're blessing things. Okay? But about idolatry, listen, here in a moment I'm going to show the tabernacle clip, which is short. But I'm going to have people pray about idolatry. Is there things, now think about your life. When has there been things in your life that was something that was an idol? Even hobbies. Some people, you know, they collect things that they're into sports or in the music or whatever, and it's actually an idol. If God ever told them to give it up, they wouldn't do it. They're like, oh, you know, that's something. Anything there that is more important than God, something that's trusted in. You know, a lot of people trust in their job and their income. If you ever stuck some people in a situation where they did not have a consistent income, but they had to believe God every month, it would drive them crazy. Because they, they, they have their confidence in that monthly, they know, okay, I'm going to make 900 something, I'm going to make that this on this date, the 15th and on 30th. You ever take that away and have them having to believe God, it'll rock their world. Because that's, and, and without realizing that some people have put their trust in that instead of God, and they don't even realize they've done it. But anything that you trust in more than God is an idol. You understand what I'm saying? That's one of the things with Sandy and I we've talked about. You know, being in the ministry, there's a lot of faith involved in having to to believe God for things. And whenever, you know, first doing it, it was a little difficult at times. You know, we'd have the panic look. But over time, as God provided, it's kind of like, look, if this ship sinks, we believe God, okay? <laughs> it's like whatever. Uh, you know, I'd rather believe God and go down, you know, in a blaze of glory, just believe in God than, than to be living in fear, you know. And so, um, but but some people really, they struggle with that. And they, they struggle with um, worshiping things. There's, there's almost a worshipful attitude. And throughout your lifetime, was there things like relationships? You know, a lot of the teenagers, you need to talk to them because a lot of the young people deal with being popular and accepted as an idol. Because they're willing to sell out Jesus just to be accepted by peers. And if they ever really deal with that idol in them, there'll come a boldness of the Holy Spirit to be able to resist that. But because that's an idol in them, idolatry in people actually makes people weak and vulnerable. Because it's what the Bible calls iniquity in you. It makes people vulnerable. Does this make sense? So... Was there things throughout your lifetime? Was there things sexual? Was there relationships? Some people, it's just like they feel like I've always got to have a boyfriend or girlfriend. It's like, was that you before you got married? Were you that way? They feel like, well, I've always got to have friends, and they always feel like I've got to have somebody. Listen, if Jesus and you are together, okay, he'll bring you the friends you're supposed to have and get rid of the ones you're not supposed to have. But some people have this idol in their life that they've got, they always have to have a relationship. I've seen guys, Joey knows one of them, that has come and they have this idol about they have to have a girlfriend. 
And they have fallen into more sexual sin. Because it's like that's their God. They have to have a girlfriend. And that makes them vulnerable and weak spiritually because of the idolatry and iniquity in them. That whenever sexual temptation comes, they fall right in. You've got to die to these idols and let the Lord circumcise it out of your heart, pull it out of you, get that iniquity out. And when that happens, there's a strength there. Okay? And so let the Lord do it. Now, so anything trusted in, anything worshipped, and anything put before God. And I think that there's some people within the sound of my voice that you, I really feel this, and I'm not saying this in a negative way, but you feel like I've already prayed about this. This is probably for somebody else. I'm glad they're here to hear it. But it's actually, it's actually you, and you still have some stuff. Okay? I feel that, man. Now, the Lord may have a sense of humor, but I really feel that. And um, it's like, well, you know, tired and all this stuff. Look, focus on the Lord and let the Lord deal with this, okay? Because sometimes some people still have things they're dealing with in health, finances, or whatever else. And they wonder, I've prayed about this, I've prayed about this, I've prayed about this. What's the deal? And if the Lord ever shines a light on it, it's going to be like, oh, man, now I understand, you know, this over here, you know, this idol or this unforgiveness or this rebellion. And they don't understand why their prayers aren't answered and they're still struggling with some stuff. If we have rebellion, we have issues in us of idols and things like that, then don't be surprised when there's other issues in your life where you're not getting answered prayers and getting breakthroughs in your life like you want. Okay. So let me, I'm going to pray. I'm going to show you this video. And then I want you to pray and, um, and deal with these idols. And then I want to show you some clips. How many of you guys want to see some clips? In it, actually, there's a guy that's raised from the dead. I mean, how many of you have never seen somebody raised from the dead? All right. Well, you'll want to get up close where you can see it. And uh, there's some healings. And um, some amazing, amazing moves of God. But let's pray. Lord, I pray tonight, Holy Spirit, that you would make it so crystal clear that if there's any type of idolatry, Lord, that you would bring it up. Generational idolatry, things that the ancestors were into, whether it be alcoholism or drugs or sexual sin or, or weird religions or occult stuff, witchcraft, whatever. And help, Lord, that as we pray about this, I pray tonight to cleanse out the iniquity, break the stuff. Lord, bring up things from our past before we were Christians that were idols. Lord, if there is still unforgiveness, some people feel like, well, I've prayed about it. But if you see the person, you still want to punch them in the nose. Okay. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to help them to see that. That's, that's not Jesus. Help them to deal with it. Forgive. And any rebellion, Lord, because we've got to come under authority and be submitted. There'll be times we're told to do stuff we don't want to do or told we can't do something that we do want to do. But if we're, if we're faithful to be under authority, your blessings will be poured out in our lives in an awesome way. And I know sometimes some people, they don't even want to ask permission about things because they don't want to be told no. Their, their motto is, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. And that's not a good way to be. So, Lord, I just pray that you would root that stuff out tonight. Prepare the way for a major move of God in every heart and every life. And I thank you for it. Holy Spirit, have your way.